So as usual, I like to begin with a question, and I want to ask first, where do you look for guidance, guidance in life? I'm asking broadly and applied to life. Now, to help us uh, think about that a bit, we all know what a GPS is, Global Positioning System, and in this day and age, many of our cars have GPS built right into it. Many of us carry a GPS right in our pockets and our phones. My Hyundai Elantra came with something better than a GPS, a, a super high-tech upgrade called LBSDS. Do you know what that is? L stands for Linda, which is the name of my wife, and it stands for Linda Backseat Driver System. <laughs> and it comes in many tones. Sometimes a happy Linda, sometimes an angry Linda, sometimes a scared at her husband's driving Linda. But kid you not, and she gave me permission to, to use this joke, um, she has better road knowledge than every cab driver in Toronto combined. She, she's better than GPS, she really is. So I do listen to her no matter what tone she's speaking in. Um, now, in all seriousness, where, where do you look to for guidance in life? If only life were so easy that there could be a life GPS, we plug in our destination where we want to get to. I want to become rich. I want a, a happy marriage. I want to raise, you know, obedient and, and successful children. I want a great job. Where, where should I live? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If only life were so easy. We plug in our destination, and then it gives us turn-by-turn -turn directions to the most direct route to get to where we want to get to in life. But we know that life is not like that. Now, in general... Some of us, as we look for guidance in life, we definitely look to status quo. We're guided by what everyone else is doing. And if everyone else is doing it, then, then we just want to fit in, and so there must be something to it. And so we're willing to just kind of go with the flow. For some of us, we're guided by impulse in those moments, that, that strong, uh, irresistible feeling uh, and, and, and appetite, perhaps. But sometimes it, it, we hit the jackpot, and it all works out for us. But other times, it just comes to backfire, and it explodes in our own faces. For some of us, we're very much guided by our logic. We need to be computational, gather all the evidence, and decisions need to be based on reason. And for some of us still, we need that inner peace. We, we need to be true to ourselves, to have that sense of consciousness at the end that, that we're being true to ourselves against all odds, against whatever the world and culture, family, religion, your upbringing might say, I need to be true to myself. Now, we've come here today because we want to know what God has to say about life in general, and here specifically today, what he has to say about how to be guided in life. And in short, what God the Father has required of us, a great theme we see starting even in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets and the Psalms, we're looking forward to the day, and the New Testament fulfills it, that we would be led by God's Spirit. If you're wondering what we mean by God's Spirit, our, even our church name, it, it speaks of, of what we believe. Trinity grace is all about who God is and grace, what he's done. If you want to ever invite a friend to church, and explain what Trinity Grace is all about. It's all about who God is and what he's done. And the Holy Spirit is the third person of our beautiful, perfect, triune God. And God's desire, and not only desire, but in fact, at what he requires is that we be led by his Spirit. There are so many passages that I could point to to show you this. 
But let me just offer you Psalm 143, verses 7 to 10, a little snippet of a beautiful prayer. And listen to this heart of longing to be guided by, by God's Spirit, but also what, what's between the lines is that God requires us to be led by His Spirit. And so the psalmist cries out, Answer me quickly, O Lord. He's looking for guidance. My spirit fails. And so here it's clear that guidance is meant to be God's spirit speaking to our spirit. Hide not your face from me. Guidance from God is meant to be relational. Lest I be like those who go down to the pit. And so here he's longing for guidance to avoid the pitfalls of life. To navigate through all the minds of life, if you will. Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Don't you wish for the same thing, that you could wake up to many sunrises, many dawns of peace, and and a sense of constancy and, and God's faithfulness and love in your life and in your heart. And he cannot be more black and white. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Teach me to do your will. Guidance. He's looking for guidance. And here it is. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. Now as we come to today's scripture then, it helps us. There's wisdom in today's scripture of what it looks like to be led by faith in Jesus, to be guided by the spirit. Uh, If you're the type that appreciates a roadmap to follow along, it's there in your bulletin if you'd like to take notes. So let's dive into the first point here, the first exhortation. Let's keep in step with the Spirit's sending. The Spirit's sending. What do we mean by that? Well, we see it in the first three verses. And first, we need to ask, why? Why does the Spirit guide us in the first place? Why is God pleased to guide us, put differently? Picking up in verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, so the Spirit is guiding here, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. There's the reason why the Spirit guides us. God is pleased to guide us when it's about being in line with, being, going further along in continuing and living out and finishing Jesus' mission in the church and to the world. That's when God is pleased to guide us. That's why the Spirit guides us, to set us apart and to call us to good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. Now here's the point. Many of us, in self-interest, we come to God as a cosmic spa and, and we seek God's guidance to just find more comfort in our lives. for our lives to be more padded and cushy, and we come with self-interested dreams that long to be fulfilled with no thought to God's mission, to Jesus' mission. And we just want God to fulfill for us what we think on our own terms a good life is. Perhaps that's why some of us today are hard of hearing the Spirit's guidance. But when we come with a heart, our agenda is to bow bow low and and to say, Lord, I understand. You've put me on this earth. The greatest purpose that I could live for is to continue and finish Jesus' mission to the church and to the world. Now, February 18th, 2018, in Toronto, this is so relevant. I was reading this past week in the Globe. They were reporting, sadly, 
tragically, that in 2017, there was an eight-fold increase compared to the average of past years, the number of people throwing themselves before a speeding train onto the tracks in the TTC. So people are literally dying for purpose. People are literally dying. More people are literally dying to find meaning in their life. And only if they could know the gospel of Jesus Christ, the love of the Father that the gospel communicates, that you are not just saved from something, but for something as well. And we can experience the wonderful adventure in this life to day by day be led by the Spirit and to be further guided into a, a, as good a life in the sense of purpose and lasting into eternity that we could have in this world living for God's glory. Now here's a a further encouragement. Whom does the Spirit send? Jumping back to verse 1, I want you to notice these names. Now they were in the church at Antioch. This was the second major church that was being established by the Spirit. There's the church in Jerusalem and now the multi-ethnic, multicultural church in Antioch. And there were prophets and teachers. Basically understand that more simply put as leaders of the church. And notice these names. Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now if you've been sticking with us uh, and been coming out to the series, then you'll recognize the name Barnabas and Saul. But do you recognize these other names? And it's okay that they're unfamiliar. That's kind of the point. The point here is that these were ordinary men, ordinary people, ordinary people, but at one point, they were gripped by the extraordinary gospel of grace, by the extraordinary love of an extraordinary God shown through an extraordinary son, Jesus Christ, their savior. And as they were following along, going on their path of discipleship and growing in their faith, they discovered giftings They matured in character to the point that they become now, at one point, leaders in the church. Simeon was called Niger, and so most likely from Africa. But he's, most commentators generally agree this is probably the Simeon who has forcefully volunteered to help Jesus carry and bear the load of the heavy weight of the, the wooden cross when Jesus tired on his way up to Golgotha. Lucius of Cyrene, to the point, there's not much on him. Just an ordinary person. Menaean here, he was a lifelong friend of Herod. He was most like, and this Herod the Tetrarch is the Herod that was king when Jesus was born. The the Herod that um, gave orders for an infanticide to try to kill off Jesus. And so Menaean most likely is older at this point. And the others are, we know are younger, and, and so even here a multi-generational crowd, a multicultural crowd. And Menaean, even though in society probably he was in the upper echelons of society, but being a lifelong friend of a great king, but in some sense too, realizing that he's ordinary and that he needs this gospel of grace. And what a beautiful testimony where he could have easily been swayed by all the lures of high society, realizing that his greatest treasure is Jesus Christ. Now today, after the sermon, we're going to appoint Joel Baker and Sam Enns. And Joel and Sam, I mean this as a compliment, as in the most sincere encouragement, these two young men are just ordinary men as well. You guys are just ordinary, and I mean that as a compliment. 
But here are two young men that have been gripped by an extraordinary grace of an extraordinary Jesus Christ and discovering giftings. And, and, and basically the elders are just acknowledging that they're already serving in ways that uh, a deacon is called to serve. Now, just as a quick aside, a deacon at Trinity Grace Church, the way we define it is a lead servant uh, who champions an aspect of the vision of our church life. But in championing it, they do two things. A, they, they serve by example. That's why they're a lead servant. But B, their role and, and is to mobilize all of you, all of you sitting in the pews, and to help you discover your giftings and to call you to serve as well. It's that all of us as ordinary people before an extraordinary grace and cross are, are inspired, are, are gifted and led by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit to serve. And so we can look forward to that, to be encouraged as a church day and strengthened. Now, a, a point to then to speak to the question, how? How do we hear the Spirit's guidance? And we see something here today, very precious and applicable. Picking up in verse 2 again, they experienced the, the Spirit's guidance while they were worshiping the Lord. What were they doing? They were placing at the highest place in their hearts, making the highest affection, their Jesus Christ. The actual word means to bow as low as possible and in effect, as you bow low, you're lifting up even higher your object of worship. And who were they lifting up? They were, as they were bowing before the Lord in their hearts, they were lifting up Jesus to the highest place. And here we see also that on the flip side, I want you to understand fasting as just the other side of the same coin. It's just a, another side of worshiping. And they were worshiping and fasting. Consider this thought of fasting then to help understand it. We fast from comforts. That's what fasting is. You abstain from, by default, we usually think of water. Perhaps many of you have fasted for a blood test and food. And that's the traditional understanding of fasting. But for the Christ follower, it means fasting from any comfort, but we don't end with a period there. Because the Christ follower doesn't fast just to whip their own back and be ascetic and come before God groveling as if we could gain more merit and God would love us more because of that. No, we fast from comforts so we can feast on Christ. We make more room in our hearts, our affections, our meditations, our thoughts, and our appetites so we could try to meditate more on Christ, experience more of Christ, we fast from comforts so we can feast on Christ, even as the Spirit forms our character. Real life example, the first time uh, when I attempted fasting as a teenager, my mom didn't know it, and perfect timing, she brings home this wonderful box of gourmet chocolate donuts, not even Tim Hortons, but gourmet chocolate donuts, chocolate glazed, and and. She set them on the kitchen table, and so I decided to fast around and meditate and pray around the kitchen table as a mature high schooler. And there was this, the, the chocolate glaze was like this freshly Zamboni sheet of chocolate ice so smooth and glistening on this perfect cylindrical dough of happiness. And of course, as I was fasting, long story short, I, 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 I fell. 
I gave in. And it wasn't even breaking the fast. I, I sinned. I fell into seduction. And, like, ah. and so in my first attempt at fasting, I certainly failed at fasting from comforts. I certainly failed at feasting on Christ. But the Spirit certainly was forming Christ-like character in me. Why? Because he brought to the surface cracks in my character. He brought to the surface my deficiencies, my, my shortcomings, my lack of self-control, etc. Now, at Trinity Grace Church, then, the, the elders, as we're going through Acts, this passage has gripped us, and, and we're trying to figure out what this will look like, starting with leadership, to have a, a regular rhythm of gospel-centered fasting, meaning feasting on Christ as we're fasting on comforts, and and we're going to deliberate as well, what can this look like for us as a whole body, as a church? So you can stay tuned, look forward. Well, hopefully in the next month or so, we'll have something to share of just calling all of us um, uh, and just inviting you on this rhythm of fasting. But perhaps to apply it very practically in your life today as you're seeking guidance, maybe uh, this is a, a discipline for, for you to incorporate into your relationship with Christ, into your discipleship. I'm not going to get into practical how-tos today. If you'd like immediately more just knowledge in that, you can approach myself or one of the elders, and we'd be happy to sit down with you and talk about that. But one more, how do we hear the Spirit's guidance answer? Look at verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is a beautiful picture, a symbolic picture of the body of Christ affirming the Lord's guidance. When it says that they laid hands on them, it was the other leaders laying hands on Barnabas and Saul, affirming the Spirit's guidance. And so it's so important that all of us are plugged into a trusted circle of Christian brothers and sisters. One of the purposes of Christian community is for you and me to ask for advice from them, to humble ourselves enough to say, hey, I have this major decision in front of me. And I need you to speak truth into my life. And I need you to be willing to even confront me if you feel like I'm going wayward. We need the body of Christ. God speaks. The Spirit affirms and speaks through Christ's body as well. Well, moving on then, second exhortation. Let's keep in step with the Spirit's message. If we're going to experience being led by faith in Christ, we need to to be in line with. We need to stay always oriented and, and just, uh, yeah, just oriented with the gospel, with the Spirit's message. What is the Spirit's message? I just stole some of my own thunder here. The, the Spirit's message, is, let's pick up in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God. This is the great and central message of the Spirit to you and me. The gospel. The word of God here is the gospel of grace. The message of Jesus Christ having taken our place on the cross instead of us for our sins. And that we're not only saved by grace, that we grow by God's grace in Christ being applied to our hearts again and again. And I love that in Acts, the consistent strategy The missional strategy is to proclaim, to announce, to simply share and keep sowing seeds of this message of Jesus Christ. 
On one hand, that's our responsibility as a church at the end of the day, just that, to keep sharing Jesus. And, and people coming to Christ, that's, that's the Lord's responsibility. But our strategy and our responsibility, our burden and our courage needs to be to continue to announce, to continue to hold out and share this gospel. Now, here's the point. This has very much to do with being led and guided by the Spirit because the more and more we are saturated with the gospel, put differently, the more and more we're able to think God's thoughts after him, the more and more we're saturated with the gospel and grace is forming our character, the way we think, then just logically, more and more we'll make more and more decisions that are good that are in line with Jesus' mission. This is why we need to keep in step with the Spirit's message, and the Spirit's message is to lift up Jesus. Let me compare it to something. This past week, there was an article featuring Jérôme Ferrer, and if you don't know him, he's a world-renowned French-Canadian chef living in Quebec. It's a touching but sad story, and it's the story about one point The love of his life, Virginie, was stricken with cancer. He was already successful, and so he put a pause on on his career, and he went into a lover's rage to research and gather the most healthy ingredients and foods and, and to cook for his love that was dying from cancer, to try to whip up as many meals that could possibly fight her cancer and save her life. Now, sadly, she succumbed to that fight against cancer, and she passed away, and he spiraled into depression. And this article recounts that there came a turning point where he had an aha moment. The way I'll be able to let Virginie's legacy live on the best is to compile together all these recipes, and so he turned it into a book, and It's somewhat of an autobiography, but it's all these recipes that were fighting for life. And he titled it Femme de Vivre, which is a double entendre, a play on words in French, meaning both end of life and hunger for life. The gospel is like Femme de Vivre. The gospel is what unpacks for us. It shows us in in, in our day and age, in our culture that is so instantaneously gratified, and I think my prophetic uh, in, uh, pr- diagnosis of our culture, our world, is that one of our greatest weaknesses is that we're stricken by short-term thinking. We're so stricken by just nearsightedness. And the gospel holds out to us, there's more to this life. It speaks of the end of life, of standing before judgment before God, but it also speaks to our hunger for life and an answer to life, a true food for life, that as we stand before this judging God at the very end of the day, we will be okay if we have placed our faith in Jesus as our answer to life, as our life itself. And so this gospel of grace, it redefines our security. We don't have to think just short-term security and savings in the bank and in our stock portfolio, etc. We don't have to just redefine define our happiness as instantaneous pleasure here and now, right now. We don't have to just define our life by just trying to be a good person here and now. We don't have to try to define our life 
by just being true to ourselves and having a sense of identity and feel good about ourselves here and now. But no, the gospel redefines our lives, our security, our happiness, our ethics, our identity for all of life, to the end of life and to eternal life. And the more we're saturated in this gospel, the more we'll find ourselves led by the Spirit. Third and final exhortation. Let's keep in step with the Spirit's battle. And here, as this passage ends, we see a spiritual battle. We're not going to get into the exact text and words of it, but as, Paul, as Barnabas and Saul were traveling, they came to Cyprus. Think of it as a province in the Roman Empire. And eventually they made their, self, uh, their way to Paphos, which is essentially like the capital of that province. And God orchestrated things that they could have the captive audience of Sergius Paulus. He was the proconsul. And it describes that he was a man of intelligence, probably education, reason-oriented, logic-oriented, very smart. And a proconsul is our modern-day equivalent of a premier of a province. So this was a very important person, a smart person. And as Barnabas and Saul have opportunity now to share the gospel, the encounter here is a spiritual battle. We need to consider that life is a spiritual battle. It's not just scientific in the sense that it's just what we can see and touch and smell, etc., with our five senses. But there's something even beyond the concrete. There's something beyond this physical world. And the way Barnabas and Saul confront the situation is to identify it and call it out for what it is, a spiritual battle. Now, here's the relevance of why we need to see life as a spiritual battle because we can easily become disoriented in the chaos of life's battles. It's in the battles of life that we lose our direction, we lose our way, and it's in life's battles that we need more and more guidance. I just want, there are many battles going on here, characteristics of the battle in this, in this passage, but I just want to point out one. The spirit battles turning away. This is what Saul confronts, and from this moment he's known as Paul for the rest of his life. And so Paul, he confronts the battle of, the spiritual battle of the enemy and people trying to turn people away from faith in Christ. And so we pick up, here is uh, Elamos, the magician. Now before we just dismiss Elamos as some sorcerer and wand waver, the actual word there for magician is the exact same word used to describe the magi who visited Jesus at his birth. And it just basically means wise man. But it was also a synonym that sometimes it, during these times, wise men were those involved in the arts, the, the, the art of magic and so forth. And so the greater point here, here was another man of wisdom, supposed wisdom, and it seems like he was... Uh, the premier's, or the proconsul's, right-hand man and first choice for counsel. And so this other wise man is trying to turn the premier away. This intelligent man, even despite his intelligence, he's intelligent enough to consider 
is there more beyond this physical, material, concrete world? And he's interested in this gospel. Now notice here, as he opposed them, what was he doing? Seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. To turn away, it does mean literally to misguide someone, but it also means to corrupt. He was trying to corrupt the gospel message. And so Paul indicts him. Paul said in verse 10, you son of the devil. And so here is Paul calling it what it is. This is a spiritual battle. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Meaning, the, the simple, straight way to attain righteousness before God. And so that's why now Paul says towards the end, will you not stop making crooked? And it's just translated differently, but this is the exact same word as turn away. Will you not stop corrupting the straight paths of the Lord? What's the straight path of the Lord? It is the simple, straight path of the simple, free gift of God and Jesus Christ, Grace, all you need to do is place your faith in Jesus. It is not the circuitous, tiresome, moralistic way of approaching God. Our intelligence, our signs, our, our ways, I'm not hating signs, I love signs, but, but when we look to our human intelligence as the only answer, then we end up muddying, we end up corrupting, we end up even throwing out the simple, beautiful, straight way of coming to God by grace through faith. We so readily turn to our own self-righteousness. We so readily turn to our selfishness. We so readily turn to our self-sufficiency. We so readily turn to just the priority of our own self-fulfillment, being true to myself. As long as I'm happy and I feel right, then that's all that matters. So let me begin to wrap it up. Who among us keeps in step with the Spirit and God's mission in perfect obedience? I'm the pastor of the church, and I even stumble. I stumble a lot. Who among you can be led and live out Jesus' mission perfectly in perfect obedience? I I probably think the safe answer is none of us. But another question, why can we even talk about being led by the Spirit in the first place then? What is our only hope? And we see it in the end here, verse 12. Then the proconsul believed. That word is faith. He faithed. He placed his faith in. What did he place his faith in? And more specifically, more accurately, in whom? When he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished. This word here means his affections, his emotions were riled up, stirred up. It wasn't just an intellectual thing. He was a man of intelligence, but he learned in that moment, he realized that it's not just about what I know and think, that my heart has to be awakened, ablaze by this love of God. And here it is, he believed his place, his faith, and his affections were turned upside down by the teaching of the Lord of Jesus, of this wonderful gospel of grace. A few years back, um, we went to the c and each year at the c there's a display of a life-size Optimus Prime. 
a transformer. And my boy really wanted to see it. He was really into transformers. It was very crowded. My wife and my daughter, uh, my daughter fell asleep for a nap. So they were stationed uh, about 50 yards away from this display. So my boy and I, we went towards uh, this display, but I wasn't holding his hand. And then when we finally got to Optimus Prime, I looked up and said, Christopher, isn't this amazing? No answer. Christopher? And then I looked, and then my heart sank to my stomach. I started sweating. My heart started racing. I was awakened to an alertness, adrenaline, panic, just, just all the emotions that you can imagine. A father thinking, where is my boy in this sea of people? Is, am I going to be able to find him? Just in those milliseconds, million thoughts, just racing and emotions. And I started running and yelling, Christopher, Christopher. To put you at ease, he was smart enough. And, and he, where my, parent, my wife and daughter were, uh, there was, uh, it was at the stage and there was a concert. And he followed the music back to his mom and, and sister. But my point is this. That, that father's panic, that father's desperation, that father's, I was ready to go out, all out mission, a search mission, a rescue mission to find my child. What is our only hope? We have a God who is also our father, whose father's heart pales in comparison, or, or my, my father's heart pales in comparison to God's. And what he has done, he has sent his son on an all-out search, a mission to find his lost sons and daughters. The good news of the cross is that Jesus, Jesus, Jesus obeyed. Jesus obeyed the Spirit's guidance perfectly to the point of giving up his own spirit on the cross in all-out search being sent out by the Spirit, staying on mission to the very end in all-out search for our disobedient hearts, even as he hung on the cross in place of our disobedient hearts. And the good news of the empty tomb is that by raising Jesus from the dead, God declares, Jesus, you obeyed my law and guidance perfectly to the point of death. So I will vindicate you and reward you with new life. And so that's God the Father by the power of the Spirit releasing Jesus from the prison of sin and death. Now what does that mean for you and me? It means this. The good news of the empty tomb, of the resurrection, is that God declares to you and me, my risen son Jesus is your living hope. This man in history with eyewitnesses that witnessed his resurrection that saw him alive again. He is your living hope that following and obeying the Spirit, daily going about, even if you're stumbling through being led by the Spirit, that it is not in vain. It is not in vain. Amen.